0: The time is safe. Holy cow! We're about to plug in with Phil Collin from Def Leppard and figure out how he and his homies created one of the very biggest rock albums of all time with producer John Mudlang, called Hysteria. But first, wow! I gotta thank Fu Tone for bringing this episode to you. That's fu-tone.com. They make killer stuff. I love their site. I just love going through it. I love this stuff. It's all the metal products that you need. I'm not talking about the music. I'm talking about literal metal items such as a brass locking nut or a titanium string saddle set for your locking tremolo or titanium string blocks. Everything you could possibly want. Brass sustain block for the back of your tremolo system. It's going to affect your tone and make it more massive. Every little thing is worth checking out and I just love their stuff. Phil Collin from Def Leppard, who you're about to meet, has been using F.U. Tone products for, gosh, 10 years or more, including different combinations of titanium and brass on all of his locking trims on all of his guitars, including F.U. Tone big blocks, saddles, trim springs, and claws for the springs. In fact, even on his acoustic guitars, he uses F.U. Tone titanium bridge pins. That's right, that guitar could be made of wood, but you'd be surprised how titanium bridge pins might affect your tone, give you more sustain and fullness. They have blocks for the back of your Floyd Rose, Ibanez, PV, Godot, Jackson, or even seven string tremolo systems, including locking trams, of course, locking nuts in brass or titanium. I love all this stuff, even trim stops, all the stuff you need. I'm really fascinated with the PMS pickup mounting system too, where you mount your pickup. Instead of using the springs, You mount that sucker right onto a hunk of brass that attaches straight into your body of your guitar. Imagine how different that's gonna sound. Again, head over to fu tone.com. That's F as in faux shizzle, U as in you know what to do tone.com. And I promise you, you're gonna dig some of these pictures. I'm really, I'm so into this stuff. It's a really interesting site. Check it out. Hey, hey, welcome to No Guitar Is Safe, episode 56. My name is Jude Gold. I'm your host. I created this show because I like to sit down with really amazing guitar players. They don't have to be famous, just amazing, and talk to them, hear their stories, play guitar with them, hear their licks, hear how they came up with stuff. Today, of course, we have amazing and famous because it's Phil Collin from Def Leppard, and he's going to tell you all about how he and his band created one of the hugest records of all time. Hysteria, featuring hits like the title track and Pour Some Sugar On Me, etc. And of course, as I said, he will reflect on the genius of the great super producer John Mutt Lang, who produced this record and is also known for producing the previous giant record of theirs, Pyromania, which only sold 10 million records. I'm joking. That's so huge, but that's nothing compared to Hysteria. And of course, also produced ACDC's most fattest records like Back in Black and Highway to Hell. By the way, you're hearing a solo tune by Phil Collin. It's called Yo To Joe. That's Yo, number two, Joe. His tribute to Joe Satriani. He really loves Joe Satriani, and he was honored to just be a part of the G4 experience, the music sort of camp that he did with Joe and Paul Gilbert and the guys in July. Speaking of July, I hinted to you that I had just done an interview in the Capitol Records building in the main studio. Well, this was that interview. That is an incredible room if you've never been in there. Of course, that's where the Beach Boys and Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra kind of put pop music on the map back in the day, you know, 50 years ago, all the way on up. That studio's delivered some incredible stuff from Green Day to Bob Seger all the way to the present and that's where we met and there was a complete film crew there so if you go on the web you'll find some some of the clips from that interview that were filmed by Universal Music, the record label. However, if you don't want to miss a single detail, here's the whole entire interview coming at you. We're plugged in, I just really just offer a little harmony and play the background rhythm guitar parts at times but mostly It's just Phil playing his Jackson Soloist PC-1 model, as in Phil Collin 1. And he's plugged into a Blackstar amp that has like a couple onboard effects, you know. We're both basically in practice amps, but man, it really delivers the goods. I think you're going to like it. And you know what? It's a trip. What I never realized is what a huge part of the Def Leppard vocal sound Phil Collin is. He has got such a recognizable voice. When he sings on this interview, It's going to be like Def Leppard is in the room with you because, well, a huge part of Def Leppard is. So there you go. I hope you enjoy it. Head to GuitarPlayer.com where we're celebrating our 50th year in print. Guitar Player Magazine, that's right. I've been writing for them since 2001. Again, my name is Jude Gold. If you like this episode, please head over to iTunes and write a nice review. And of course, visit our friends at FUTone, that's FU-Tone.com, who brought this episode to you. I really hope you enjoy it. It was a thrill to record. And last but not least, go out and grab yourself a copy of Hysteria, the 30th anniversary remastered album. I got mine at Amoeba Records in Hollywood for 11 bucks, brand new. You can also get the three-disc version with a bunch of extra tracks or even a huge box set version. And it does sound massive, man. I really dig it. All right, let's head over to the Capitol Records building, the big room, Studio A, and hang out with Phil
1: Collins.
0: there <laughs> thanks for being here so how fun is it to play like that through a giant PA system not just your guitar rigs but maybe even at soundcheck before the crowds show up and then when the crowds show up you've got the biggest artillery in the world is that an ultimate dream for a guitar player
2: absolutely it's the best thing in the world And actually what's really funny people they, they, they ask they go doesn't it ever get old and it's like are you insane I'm nearly 60 and I'm, I'm allowed to do act like a kid and, and do stuff like that in front of all those people and in front of those, you know, amps and guitars. and everything. It's killer, yeah. Is
0: that your ultimate tone, the empty arena? What's what's your ultimate guitar tone sound setup? I, um, my ultimate sound is,
2: you know, th- this comes up a lot. It's, it's whatever you're playing through, really. I mean, this sounds exactly like my giant rig. You know, I have a... a a Marshall going through a Randall power amp that I've had since the eighties and it's going through, you know, two uh, EVH cabinets. Sounds amazing. But it still sounds exactly like me. I think it really comes down to to the person playing it. You know, when we done the Hysteria album, uh, most of it was done on a Rockman. But it's still, you know, if, you, if you're playing something <laughs> like that. It actually sounds like the, the record and, um, you know, it's obviously not. That was done on a little like, transistor box.
0: And was that the little headphone version or the rack mount version of the Rockman?
2: It, it was the, the little box version. And um, just going back in, I think Tom Schultz, we really liked one of the earlier versions. And the distortion was different. This, if you want to get really geeky. Sure. Um, he said, wow, well, I'm amazed that you, you recognize that. And he, had, he actually made me a rack mount with the original distortion in it, which I have at home.
0: Awesome. Now, Phil, I would love to just for one second, we're here to discuss like the one of the greatest rock albums ever. But you actually have two of those. And just could we go back just for one question? How did you get the call originally to join Def Leppard, which was around the pyromania sessions? And what was the vibe like when you came in to replace Pete Willis?
2: Um, I was asked to join Def Leppard. Um, I'd known Joe, actually, all the guys, actually. I I was in a band called Girl, and we'd play the same venues in England. You know, I'm from London, those guys are from Sheffield. And um, I remember I I stayed up, we we missed the the bus or something, and me and Phil Lewis at the Singer and Girl stayed at Joe Elliott's house, his mum's house, back in the day. And that's how, you know, friendship started then. So we were in touch. together, and, and there were some problems with Pete and, and, and the band, and uh, Joe had called me once before actually while they were doing the uh, High and Dry tour of, of the States opening up for Ozzy, and he said, hey, can you learn 16 songs in two days, and I'm like, yeah, sure, you know. and two days later, nothing, and he calls back and he said, oh, we kind of smoothed it out. So there was, there was something you know going on, and we knew each other as, as, as people, you know, we actually liked each other, so that, that made it very easy, and then um, I got a call midway through the recording of uh, Pyromania all the songs were written and Joe said you want to come on and play some solos play some lead guitar on the album we've, we've kind of Pete's not in the band and you know, I said, yeah, sure I'll come and help out and that, that's all I thought it was so um I came down and and immediately uh, Something something kind of happened. There was, a, there was a dynamic shift, you know, I, I, I sung a certain way they they Needed more vocals, and all of a sudden, we just finished the record off. Mutt had me singing and, and playing on all this just fun stuff. Like, he'd go, right, go crazy. And you know, first thing I did was a solo and stage fright, and then uh, then photograph. And, and, and with Mutt, it was always such an inspiration working with him. He'd it, go, you know, have fun with it. It's got to do this, it's got to reflect the melody of the, of the singing and stuff like that. So, you, you'd learn as you were
0: going along. It was amazing. And Mutt is obviously one of the greatest producers ever. Now, what was in your heads? You already had one of the biggest albums ever with Pyromania, You've got the diamond award, like over 10 million sales in the US alone, who knows worldwide. And you guys were like, you have the audacity to you want to top it. Where, what was your headspace when you're ready to start the next album after that? Um, Pyromania
2: had, hadn't actually gone 10 times platinum. It, it only stalled at 6 or something while we were on till Obama, I know, you know. Um, and, and when we went in to record Hysteria, uh, the, the main objective, it wasn't like, oh, there's a lot of pressure, there's this, there's that. Mutt said, everyone else is making Pyromania part two, every rock band in the world. So we got to do something different. He said, let's, let's do a rock version of Thriller, where you have like seven singles and let's kind of create a genre of our own. I mean, he's amazing at doing that. You know, I actually really believe that, that Mutt is responsible for bringing Country music to the masses, you know, when, when with the Shania stuff, he. Um, I remember hearing it in Japan and thinking, well, this is the first time I've ever heard country and western on the radio in Japan. So I think he he done that. He made this this perfect hybrid, and and with us, that's that's what he really pushed us to do. And it was, you know, bringing in all these different influences, you know, R and B, even even like rap, early rap, you know, like. Run DMC and and Public Enemy, some some of the vibe of that stuff, you know, we clearly, when you pour some sugar on me, it's a, the meter of the vocal is is actually a, a rap, you know, pre hip hop kind of meter on the vocal. So there's all these amazing things. I was a huge police fan and you know, Motown and all these different prints. I love prints. So we, we just brought all these elements in and, and that, that was Mutt's thing. It's like, let's this, this make something that crosses over and, and gets everyone.
0: Well, Mutt was the superhero rock producer with, you know, ACDC, Highway yeah. to Hell, Back in Black, Pyromania, Foreigner 4, High and Dry, what was the reaction amongst the band when he's like, I want to bring in pop elements to the world's biggest hard rock band. Um,
2: when Mutt said we want to bring in pop and we were like, great. You know, we loved Queen. We love the Beatles, the Stone, you know, bands that crossed over in, into the pop realm. Michael Jackson, love Michael Jackson, you know, love, love Prince and, and that they weren't just R and B artists. They, they crossed over. And I think anyone who's massively successful doesn't stay in a box. And I think it's it's that open-minded kind of mentality that that allows you to to kind of breathe and and let out all the all, all the inspiration that you've brought in is to let it out. If you're just going, I'm a rock guy and I you know I wear leather and and this is all I do, you're, you're going to stay in that kind of frame of mind. And and with Mutt, he he was just great at opening this up. And, and and plus you know you'd hear this stuff, he'd go, yeah, this is cool, but that melody's kind of sucks and and that lyric's not strong enough and. You know, we need another section, and, and all all of this stuff. So we learned so much; it was amazing.
0: Any uh, specific outside influences that you remember him bringing in, or any crazy approaches that you were stunned, or pop elements that he brought in that you're like, "Wow, I never thought of that. That was cool." Uh, Mutt would
2: constantly bring in different elements of. I mean, one of the back then, you know, um, in his car. This is when we had cassettes. He'd have George Jones tapes lying around. He's a huge country fan, and. Uh, you know, like Don Henley's voice, the tone in his voice, which I do as well. I love it, and it's um, actually something you hear on our records, and it's because we learnt it from Mutt, and Mutt learnt it from just picking up all these different things. So you actually even hear that kind of, yeah, you know, desperado, all that kind of that kind of right. growly thing that's in there, and we all have that, and we we kind of uh, got that from Mutt, just just be doing that. So yeah, I th- any influence really, if it's good, if it's great, it, and and it makes you excited and inspired, then, then you're going to kind of adopt it.
0: Now, Mutt is also a grandmaster of a, a tragically lost art, which is the art of pre-production. How did he prepare you for the hysteria sessions?
2: Um, with Mutt, the pre-production thing, we didn't really do it like other bands. You know, we didn't have, let's get 30 songs and we'll choose the best. It was like, let's make a great song and, and go from there, which is really what we did. So, you know, one great song and then... But by the time you're doing that, something else, you're inspired by something else, and then something comes in. I, I just finished producing the new Tesla album, and, and that's really how we did that. You know we had one song and then we were inspired to do another one. We'd done a lot of it on tour, and uh, the great thing with, with hysteria or any other stuff we did with Mutt, we we, sat in a, we rented a house in Dublin, uh, and we kind of wrote the songs, and, and, and they all came out, but they were all quite. Diverse, You know, they're all very different from one another and the influences were huge. You know, there was Duran Duran, you know, uh, Michael Jackson, uh, ZZ Top, you know, whatever was on the radio, Prince, The Police, uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, you know, all the Trevor Horn stuff, which was phenomenal. You'd hear it on on the radio and it just just sounded it was ear candy. But it was great songs, great melodies. And, And the other thing, you know, always respect groove and melody which is something we learned, and we, we still do that, you
0: know. Well, maybe you could start by showing us what I think was the quickest song to record and the last song to record, and also the biggest song on the album, to my knowledge, Pour Some Sugar On Me. So Pour Some Sugar On Me we started, we'd, we'd kind of finished the album,
2: and, you know, we were late delivering the record to the record company and all of this stuff, and Joe's sitting in the corridor in, in, in a studio, very much like this, we were in Holland, and he's just like sitting there with an acoustic guitar and Matt goes, what's that? And he goes, I don't know. And he, it's like, Poor some sugar. So before, he said, we should make a song of this. We should record it. And we're going, well, we're a bit, we're way over. We're four and a half million dollars in debt and all of this stuff. And he said, no, I think this is, We should. We should this song's going to be really important. And um, once you have a starting point, the songs usually write themselves. If you're an artist or a songwriter even, you know, you can, if you can see, the, the value in what what's come along, and the chorus was great, you know. Pull some sugar on me, and it was just a matter of filling in the blanks, it's a jigsaw puzzle. So um songs in general, you have a, a starting point, if, it, if it's great, it, it could be a chorus, it could be a, a, a title, we've even gone there. So we had the title and we had Joe singing this almost structure, this this melody. Mutt um, being a, a master songwriter, it's, it's like, well these are the chords that go behind it. And he Come up with this riff. Uh, Mutt is a, is a great player as well, but he's like I said, he's country. So he actually uh, was playing it like this. It sounds a little country, so which is cool. But you know, I don't. I suck with my finger style playing, and I use metal guitar picks. You know. So he said, "Well, just do it. whatever you do." So. And, and again, with the metal guitar pick, you know, it's kind of got more of a presence and a bite, and it's, it's more kind of uh, aggressive. That, I even remember what we did. It was through a Rockman, and it was two, two of my, I had a Jackson um, soloist. It was two tracks of that, and two tracks of a Fender Telecaster playing exactly the same thing. So
0: four tracks on the first lick Just that on we that heard? lick, yeah. John Mutt Lang, ACDC fame and all this stuff. Or did you think he was nuts for using the Rockman? Or how did the Rockman, this is a guy who's famous for his organic guitar tones and you're going direct through a
2: box. Yeah, we are. I, I, the thing was, um, we, we used the Rockman because we, we didn't want all this noise to get in the way. We, we wanted to put a lot of vocals in. You know, Queen was a big influence. They'd maybe use eight or 16 tracks. We would be doing 130 tracks per person and, and stuff. And then Mutt, sings as well, he's got the best voice in the room. So he'll be tracking it up and not gratuitously, you know, the melody has to come through, but then you get these great melodies, counter melodies, and and this kind of just wall of sound. So you, you um, and, and the drums, you know, we Rick Allen obviously had, had the accident and, and we didn't use live drums. We always do the drums last so they don't mess the song up. You know, if you've got a drum track and the guy's going, psh, 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 and, and you go, oh, we change the vocal and there's a sensitive vocal there. You go, this this guy's thrashing around the cymbal. So we do the drums last and, and even sonically with Rick's kit, you know, it wasn't just a regular drum kit. It had pedals and it had samples and triggers and all this stuff. So we were able to have this amazing giant sonic sound, you know, like sub bass that, that you'd hear on other records. You'd hear them on, Anything from Frankie Goes to Hollywood, you'd hear him on Shaka Khan, you know, I feel for you. You'd, you'd hear all, the, all of these great things and drum machines and samples and stuff. So we were doing that. And I think if you've got amplifiers and you're miking up, and it's fine if you've got two guitars, but if you're doing like 16 guitar parts on, on one, one particular point, it starts uh, competing with the vocal sonically. So you really want something that you can control. So the rock one, that,
0: that's really why that came about. And obviously the drums were very direct. And so do you think that ironically, or at a silver lining to Rick's accident, is that he ended up with a very modern kit? Did that somehow make the album sound even more modern?
2: I think absolutely. Uh, Rick's kit definitely made it sound different to anything else that was out there. And like I said, you know, it was almost like creating a new genre. It was, it was rock without all the, all the kind of uh, machismo kind of Rock attitudes towards things, you know, it was like, no, we're, we're artists and we want to make this great. So that was the thing going into it. I think um, uh, again, I meet a lot of lot of bands and they they kind of shoot themselves in the foot because they they're this ego driven. And uh, we we didn't have any of that. It was all thrown out the window. It's like whatever makes the song great, you know. It's it's going back to the, that whole Beatles thing. It's like George, might if we're going to put strings on here, we're going to have a brass band on this section. Whatever makes it great, and and that's what we did. And it was just inspiring and and amazing to be able to do that not having these limitations that are are based on ego or a genre that you're in you know
0: now mutt put so much there's okay there's just a distinct preponderance of these awesome swells on hysteria like reverse reverbs coming in and vocal swells and guitar swells what was the approach with all those swells
2: uh mutt's whole thing was 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 the ear candy but you gotta have the song and you gotta have all the, the the Vibe of it first, and that's just enhancements. It's again, you know, we we were trying to make Star Wars for the ears. That that was the that was the absolute phrase that was floating around. It's like, yeah, all these other bands they they sound one dimensional. Let's make a let's create a third dimension, and and you've all all of a sudden you've got this new instrument which is the backing vocals. No one had ever done it to that extreme before, I don't think. Um, So. There was that, and then, then you had all this other stuff on top of it, like these, these crazy noises. And uh, Again, nothing gratuitous. There was always a, a place for it. There was, and, right. and again, if you've got the control, you've got sonic control. You haven't got drums or amps cranking up that's actually getting in the way of stuff. Everything had its place sonically and, and rhythmically as well. So you, you were able to do the Star Wars for the ears thing. It actually worked a treat.
0: And speaking of background vocals, on a typical song... On that album, how many <laughs> stacks of vocals? How many voices are actually in one of those?
2: When we do vocals, it's never like I said. It's never gratuitous, and each song deserves different things. Um, the chorus on "Pour Some Sugar on Me," um, that was actually less tracks than say "Love Bites." You know, if I remember rightly, I, I had me singing the "Pour
1: Some Sugar on
2: Me" now, really loud, not like that, like and it hurt. And he's going, "Yeah, do it like that. Sounds great." And it's like, I think we done like four or eight tracks, then then Sav done some, Mutt done some, and, and maybe even Joe on that as well, on that backing vocal. All of a sudden, it, um, that's all you needed. But like, Gods of War, we, there was literally hundreds and hundreds of tracks on it, you know all of us standing around a, a microphone. I remember even the room we'd done it in, in, in Dublin. We were in uh, Windmill 2 studios in Dublin, and uh, you know, we'd all be singing around multi-tracking, 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 and then individually and everything. So that, that one had a, a, a ton on it.
0: pour some sugar on I me mean,
2: recorded pour some sugar on me. started um in holland i actually i think that's where the, the whole thing pretty much fell fell into into place it was the last song we did and that, that was our last kind of venue to record so yeah it was in hilversum in in holland
0: now why did you guys record in so many different places for one album
2: um we recorded different places because uh, no one actually lived in england so and and we uh, we initially went to Hilversum the great studio in in Holland and uh it start we didn't realize it was going to cost so much and uh we didn't we didn't realize that we were going to spend more than a year there and you, then you started seeing these bills coming in and you're like oh my god so we went to Dublin and uh, that was a, a jingle studio windmill studios is, is famous for joshua tree like the u2 stuff was done there but they had a little annex, a little kind of satellite studio around the corner that was for jingles. So we got that really cheap, so that's the reason we went there. Have you ever
0: recorded in this room?
2: Never recorded, I've, I've been in here before, but we've never recorded. We got, we got Abbey Road once, we actually recorded some stuff in there.
0: In the Beatles room? Yeah. That's a magical that place. So. Do you play lead guitar on the on Pour Some Sugar on Me? Like on the in the end, there's kind of a solo. Yeah, that's all me. Yeah. Any other parts you'd like to show us from Pour yeah, Some well, Sugar Well, yeah, just the the
2: course uh, Sorry, the, the the main riff on on Pour Some Sugar on Me it was uh, again initially it was kind of continuous. It was, it was actually in a different key for a start off. It was something like the mutt said, "No, have a gap for the snare." And, and and then there was like two different guitar parts that there was there's a gap and that's all that happened in the verse and there's a and then i think the... that that was the other the other part that went over that and then when you got to the chorus it's and there's a So
0: that. Again, Mutt, hes basically patented that gap. We should name the gap after him. Do you Absolutely. Feel, talk about the gap. You know what I'm talking
2: about? Yeah, I do know about the gap. Um, it's most people try and fill space. You know, and musicians are, are, are great for it. But when when you have gaps in the music, like Rock of Ages, we will rock you by the Queen. You know, it's kind of there's nothing there until the guitars come, and then when it, when you get to the chorus, it all it kind of hits you and it, it kind of uh, is an anticipation, and excitement. So uh, uh, again, you, you can kind of have this real rocking out thing, like, again, pour some sugar on me. Backbeat, snare, you know, it's so important, it t- you, you kind of hook onto it. And then you get to the, the pre-chorus is that,
1: like, take a bottle
2: and shake it up, take a bottle. you know, and all of that stuff. And then by the time you kick in on the chorus, it's like it, it, it's all in, and you're you know thrashing on the cymbals, and God knows what. It kind of it's party time.
0: Man, you sound like the record. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing makes a drum sound huger than not, not having any other instruments. A- to play. Absolutely, it's it, it kind of you. You listen to a lot of
2: funk stuff and R and B, and it even back in the day, people would play like that. You know, they you know the muscle shoals thing, or, or a lot of the guys they'd, they'd find space, and and they'd kind of um, allow the singer and allow the song to, to present itself. And you're just backing the song up. So I think as a musician, a, a lot of times people forget that. And you're, you're just trying to enhance the song. If, you, if you're kind of stepping all over it, you're, you're kind of screwing it up.
0: Well, maybe we could move on to another one of the new sure. singles, Love Bites. Beautiful intro chord pattern. How did the intro to that song come about? So the song "Love Bites" um,
2: Mutt actually brought it to us as an acoustic thing. You know, again, he's got this great voice, and, and it almost sounded like an Eagles thing. It, it was um, he, he, he was playing it on acoustic.
1: When you mail out, do you look in the mirror? Who do you think of?
2: Does it look like me? I mean, he was would play it like acoustically. Yeah. And it was really cool. And, and then I, I think me and Steve, we, we started doing this um, harmony chord thing. So literally, I, you know, I'd, I'd play like a, a, a minor seventh. Oh, and we changed the key of it live. Uh, on, the, on the record, it's, um, it's a lot higher than that, but you know, it's nightmare for the vocals. And um, so yeah, it was a... So I had all this this stuff going, and, and, and like kind of really, like the hi-hats and kind of percussion and and all of this other thing. We we turned it into something else. Like it started out as a country song, but then it kind of, it it's stuff that you'd hear on an R and B record, really.
0: Is that the key you played in live? That's the way you do minor? it live,
2: because normally it, w- it was up there, yeah. and it was also up a half step from where uh, we From there as well, yes. Yeah.
1: So it's like, Will you love. It's like yeah
2: really hard so yeah that, that's that's how we done it and and again space in the verse and and then it would be like um uh, the, the
1: pre-course
2: and I, I would do all of these kind of counter things so everyone so um
0: often the chorus. For a hard rock band, quote unquote, usually the bands will kind of stay kind of in one key or in related keys. Right. There's huge key jumps. Like that chorus is a jump to one of the more distant keys from where you started. Yeah. Like you're in C sharp minor and then it's like you jump to F. Right. There's like no relation there really. Did you guys come up with these key changes? That
2: song, like I said, you know, Mutt brought that in as an acoustic... Almost like a Don Henley oh, demo. That's including how it sounded. the chorus part. Everything, yeah. Oh, okay. And, and that, that was the structure of it, and we, we just kind of rocked it up, you know. And like the, the, the melody on the on the on the uh, co- you know on the chorus where it goes, Love bites, love bleeds. Um, it had this lick going. Okay,
0: let's play that together. Love bites. great half distorted like that too <laughs> there's a great little muted part in that you know guitar lingo i call it yeah you know the muted part it's originally in d minor okay they were tuned down a half step and then maybe you played it in c sharp which would mean it was a whole step town yes you know the part i'm talking about
2: uh, if it's um the uh... Great. That was on a Rockman, actually. Yeah, again, <laughs> you know, on, on, on there.
0: Just to cut ahead for a second, the tour must have been crazy for this album. What, how many shows did you do? We, we were out on tour for about a year and a half because the album didn't break initially.
2: You know, we, we were yeah. out there and we were playing half empty arenas in the States. Um, and it didn't go as expected, you know, so we were like, um, it, it was a bit weird, and then Pour Some Sugar Me, the third single broke, and then it all changed, and we're playing the same venues, and you know, you're doing three nights there, and stuff like that. One of the other things happened, um, Love Bites went to number one while we were on tour, and we'd never played it live. Um, I, I, again, you know, when we'd done that, that particular lick, lick on, the, on the album goes, I want it to have vibrato all the way through this. <laughs> He wanted it to go like a slight vibrato, like kind of like that. So while I'm playing it, Steve was actually doing the whammy bar. Oh, so I, I wish we'd have got a photo of it, but <laughs> he, so I'm playing the lead part and he's, he's doing the vibrato while I'm playing it. So I had this kind of, so that's next time awesome. you hear it, it's that, that's two right, people.
0: Let's l- hear it. Let All right. Let me grab the bar. Okay. Ooh, uh. <laughs> this is too cool. So I think I can do this. All right, ready?
2: One, two, three. Yeah, careful, huh? yeah it's, 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 <laughs> but that, that was basically it, and that's cool. we, it seemed like a joke at first, but actually when, when you hear it, that's exactly what we did all the way through it. <laughs>
0: I love your vibrato, it's very bluesy and soulful. Who are, who are your heroes you. as far as guitar vibrato goes?
2: My heroes for vibrato um, and, and, and play. I love Jimi Hendrix, my favorite player ever, you know. Uh, but Gary Moore, Mick Ronson, uh, Michael Schenker, all had killer vibrato, just slow and, and, and deliberate and, and, and sexy vibrato that, that's not just, um, it's never random. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's there's a bunch more people, but they're the ones that, that really stand out.
0: Now, you guys were pioneers, I'd say early pioneers. I don't know who was first, but the giant rock arena show in the round. What were the initial challenges with doing that and how did that evolve?
2: Big challenges doing the in the round thing um, was that you couldn't get the equipment ready. I mean, we had 13 trucks and I remember the first show, Glens Falls, New York, and they, they barely got the equipment up, you know, or down when they when they started it. Got it down. It's like there's no way we're going to get to the next town and put this up. So we it was like, oh my god. But they did. That our crew was amazing. Uh, the whole idea came about. Peter Mensch, uh, our then manager, saw Frank Sinatra in, uh, at the Garden in New York and was like, dude, we got to play in the round. I just saw Frank and it was killer. We we got to do it. And I, I know yes had done it, but no one had done it. You know, they had a revolving stage, but. I had six different mics to sing down. And so it was like a, it was, it was a challenge, but it was, it was something that we all loved doing. You know, it was like so exhausting, but just total fun. You know, it's like not a bad seat in, in the house. You know, four front rows basically. And like I said, I'd, I'd sing a vocal sing down there, one on the side, one that side, one over there. So it's four,
0: so it's eight altogether
2: together. And, and you'd be like stuck on a mic, it was
0: great. Did you? choreograph ahead of time i know i when a band's on tour after a while you start developing natural choreography or patterns but were you guys just running into each other on stage at first
2: <laughs> we did start running into each other initially and then you, you get proficient at it and then you kind of avoid the the clangers so yeah
0: now, i know you've told the story before but how the heck do you guys get to the stage so when it's time to play
2: at how we got to the stage um Rick Allen would play along with the opening act. So he would go out in disguise. He'd, he'd like wear a baseball cap and a, a fake arm, actually. He'd gone out with a, with a beer in it and he would be strolling around like this. And he would get there and he'd jam along with the other band. That was his warm up. We would get in, in laundry hampers. And um, one day we, we played um, Chicago and Robert Plant was there. And he said, let me push it out. So we're like, whoa. So me and Sav were sh- sharing this laundry hamper. We're like, oh, Crunched up, and, and Robert Plant is pushing us out there with this bandana wrapped around his head, and no one even noticed. So, you know, it's, we're freaking out because it's Robert Plant. But, um, yeah, he got us to the... That's how we would get to the stage. Obviously, we didn't always use Robert Plant. But it was, uh,
0: Don't people, after a while, figure out the laundry hamper trick? Or? No.
2: No one ever figured it out.
0: In all that time, no one ever figured it out. How did you get off the stage at the end? Wait for the crowd to leave? Yeah, you have to chill afterwards, yeah, just hang out there. Didn't I see a video once where you guys had a crazy room under the stage? Well, just actually, just it, it would actually the stage right. itself. Like
2: any stage. Yeah. You are just under there and you're kind of stuck there. You'd have a bucket to take a pee and you'd have a mirror there so you could see, you know, come down between songs or whatever. And, and the guitar changes. Obviously, all your guitars are down there. There's a little kind of room with the amps and everything
0: else. You know, I've interviewed a lot of players and... Uh, this whole peeing under the stage thing has come up a lot in recent months. Well, you have to, I mean, even now when we
2: play regular stages, um, you have to pee. I drink tons of water and there's, I have to get, okay, that, that section there, Joe's going to talk for a minute and that's that's my cue. And I, I run over there and have a great Do you write pee. that into the set list? Abs- absolutely. <laughs> no, we, we kind of know where, where they come, yeah.
0: Incredible. Now, do you? can you remember any just like... Total Spinal Tap moments, or just ridiculous things that happen on that tour on the stage. Well, you know.
2: Yeah, we've. I mean, constantly had Spinal Tap moments. Um, at one point, we had this um, these giant these triangles. You know, the, the album sleeves are triangle, and they were on stage, and it looked like Spinal Tap. when we hadn't seen them, and that we we arrived at the venue. It was Pine Knob, I think, and it was sold out and there's these three things and it's windy and they're like, oh no. And we have to jump off, a, off of a thing and uh, we a- actually never used them again because they, they were, I think a little bit dangerous, but it was like totally embarrassed. So I think the same venue, I went running to the microphone and a giant, it looked like a praying mantis was on my mic stand. <laughs> and I was like, just f- freaked. I went to sing and there's this thing and it, it was like a monster. I was like, oh my God, I've, I'd never experienced that before. So I think that was the same venue where, where we had the kind of Stonehenge Spinal Tap kind of things going. So yeah, so, yeah, things go wrong all the time.
0: Does your guitar tech change your effects for you?
2: Scotty, my tech, actually does all my guitar change. I don't even know what, sometimes it just makes something up. But as long as the solos kick in, um, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. And, and then delay will come in and it, it will mess around. It'll take a little bit. So I use a, uh, Axe Effects. For for all of the um, all the effects and, and stuff, and he, he stands there doing that. He actually doesn't even use it on the floor. He just Sweet. does it manually with his hands.
0: And do the axe effects go through separate rigs, like on stage, different cabinets? Like
2: we use uh, in-ear monitors all the time. So the the axe effects, I've one that goes out to, to the out front. Ronan McHugh mixes that, and then I have a different one that, that I have in my ears, and that goes
0: to our monitor guy Ted. Amazing. It really helps if the front of house person is monitoring the guitar effects. Absolutely.
2: He's, he's got a, a totally different feed. Yeah? The effects, are he, he has that, but he, he act, it's the same as what, what comes out on stage. But he just actually EQs it a little different.
0: You know, I think on this tour is when you lost Steve Clark, basically, um, or, you know, after this album. Yeah. What would you like guitar players to know? I mean, everyone knows his uh, the stage persona and the video persona, but what would you like guitar players to know about him?
2: Uh, Steve, what a a lot of guitar players don't know about Steve, is um, he wasn't the standard player. You know, I've played with a lot of guitar players over the years and and Steve's brilliance was he'd come up with these wonky ideas. Like the solo in um, Hysteria, we actually both played it at the same time. It was probably the only thing on on the record that was done like kind of live, if you like. Mm -hmm. We actually both played the same notes. But the, the notes he chose to the, to use, and, and, and even like a, something like Gods of War, you know, which was actually based on a, a almost like a message in a bottle Andy Summers thing, you know. It's, it's it's that kind of thing, but it's like, but you you play it in a hard rock kind of, place. whatever it is. It was um just unique things that weren't the standard rock fair that, that most guitar players come up with. It was like special and unique.
0: Could you demonstrate that lead guitar part on Hysteria that you're talking about, sure. that, he, that he wrote that with? Uh... Yeah,
2: he'd he done it. And then both of us, uh, you know, I used my, I had a Fender Strat that, that was the main guitar on the album, had a DiMazio on it, had a, it. It had a you know, carved out. And uh, that, that was the, the pretty much f- for every, every main thing on there. But the solo was like two, three. <laughs> And it goes into that. I got
1: tonight.
0: I love those shimmering chords. Obviously, here you got a little dirt, but on the album, no.
2: Right, so here's, here's a little myth part that, that come out. Everyone goes, "We well, are Def Leppard. You record a string at a time." So that particular part, we did record a string at a time. It was, um, so it was, it would have been this live. We we played everything. Right, string at a time. So, so the, first the track was, was ding, ding on one. St- well, one would be. Yeah.
0: Awesome. So you're using six tracks to do one guitar part.
2: And then double track it. Uh, and so then you you, would, you might, didn't want it to have um, an arpeggiated and, and didn't want to use a keyboard because that would have been lame. So, you know, it was like we wanted to keep it kind of rock on that song anyway. Um, so, yeah, that, that was, and, and, and you don't want to play it like, because it sounds right. like you're plucking it so that's awesome. and again a unique uh, another little unique twist on it and a different sound
0: I would estimate with doubling that that's about 10 tracks maybe 8 tracks of guitar um, for that part yeah
2: absolutely yeah and, and again I, I remember the room I was sitting in when we done that that was in uh, Windmill 2 on, on an old I, I think it was a Soundcraft desk like an old you know cheap little desk and, and everything and just get the stuff all recorded so it was, it was killer and then again it opens up on the chorus um with three different guitar parts, you know, you, you had this, uh, you, you'd, you'd have these things, but this, so you'd have that, but I, I played it separately, like, and a clean sound with it. I mean, there was, there was like 20 guitars on that, that particular Just part. Wall. And and then also you'd have the... (laughs) That's a beautiful part. Let's try the again. So you just do like an E... (laughs) C...
0: You must have so much fun running around playing these huge guitar parts. Uh, Amazing, yeah. Hey, just a quick time out here to thank F.U. Tone for bringing us this awesome hang with Phil Collin. I'm really enjoying it. I hope you are too. There's so much more to come, but please, at some point, head over to fu-tone.com. Check out these awesome hunks of metal that they are offering you, such as these titanium string blocks for your locking trim, You know, you can get these elsewhere, but most of them are rated at only 40,000 pounds. Sounds like a lot. Well, check this out. F.U. Tone's titanium string blocks are rated at 140,000 pounds. That decapitates the competition. And, of course, they have all this other groovy stuff there, such as sustain blocks that will add good vibrations, because that's what we're all after when it comes to tone. Good vibrations to your Floyd Rose to your Ibanez trim, PV Godo, Jackson, or even 7-string trims. They've got it all. They also have other products, like cool metal stuff, like the D Tuna that they offer on that site. Go over there, check it out. It's fu-tone.com. All right, let's go back to hanging out with Phil at Capitol Records. Did you guys use Gates on the album or anything? Because this is obviously before Pro Tools and stuff. Sure. So, um, we had magicians
2: working for us. Like Nigel Green was a magician and, and Mike Shipley, they're, they're just amazing. And Mutt's a, a great engineer as well. Like Some of the stuff we'd sit there and, and record ourselves, but, but those guys would, would do stuff that, you know, you, you mentioned to engineers, i go, well, I'd d- d- drop in on a vocal, on a syllable and then out again, but they would do it on two inch tape. They'd be going, so if you, if you sing it, say singing, um,
1: I got a note tonight. Nah
2: they they drop in and drop out on the night, and you wouldn't it, it, it was seamless. So, yeah. so and there's you no know, we, second chance on that. Huh? There's no second chance. Right? Yeah. So it was, it was just amazing. So it was just great to work. That the team was amazing.
0: Can you tell us about this Jackson guitar you're holding?
2: I can indeed. This is my lovely um, Jackson PC1. Um, it's been in production now for about 20 years. Um, this is one of my favourite ones. It's a uh, maple top. Um, mahogany back like like a les paul um but it's got a, a, a maple fretboard and it's it's a s- hybrid super strat really uh and then i have this these are Dimarzios. I, i've got Dimarzios on everything this is super three um i'm actually gonna gonna use the the super distortion the rail ones but um this is an hs2 i think if i'm not mistaken
0: in the middle position yeah
2: and then this is a sustainer so it actually works as a pickup as well like a Floyd Rose makes these but it also works as a sustainer so when we're doing this stereo I'd use an ebo. You know with this I
0: So that is such a cool toy <laughs> thank you I was wondering what the extra battery pack on the back was for
2: right so that's, that's the. the and I, most of the time live I just leave it on um, I have a really kind of fat neck this, this one isn't particularly fat but you, usually the, the, the ones I use on, on tour are, are kind of monstrous and then I have the Floyd with, with the titanium stuff um, this is an FU tone uh, titanium thing and, and a block and
0: uh, just those saddles there are titanium on this one yes yeah and the block is... Yeah, the, so you can
2: do just different elements. Like some, I've got it, this titanium on some of the stuff. And, on the nut is titanium? Yeah, and then you mix it. some of the stuff with brass. I mean, it depends on the guitar. But, um, yeah, it really makes a difference to the sound.
0: Who makes your metal pick and also which strings do you use?
2: They're Dunlops. Um, they, I use brass picks now. Uh, my friend Rudy, who I grew up with in, in London, who's a, an amazing guitar player, gave me a, a, a brass pick. Uh, about two years ago, and I, I gave it to Brian May. He said, oh, I can't take it if your friend gave it to you. I said, no, it'd be totally cool with that. You know, it's, it's, you're Brian May, you know, this is cool. But so I, I used them on tour and I actually done a whole British tour with one pick, but now Dunlop make them. So, and, and these these are incredible. Then again, it's a slightly different sound. It's like, especially if you're, if you're shredding, you can actually hear it in every note. You can actually hear the, the
0: How thick is that pick? It almost looks like as thick as a quarter or something. It, it, it's pretty, pretty fat. Oh, that was a great shot. <laughs> right on the music stand. I my friend Joel Hoekstra. I don't know if you know him from White I know Snake. Joel,
2: absolutely, yeah. He,
0: He's lent great. Me, he gave me one of his, and I found out after a while, if I didn't change the strings regularly, I was carving through the wound strings. Well, what I would do, I, I
2: used to use steel picks. Like on, on this ear mm-hmm. album I used a steel guitar pick, but... um. They would shred the strings that this actually gives way before. I don't know if you noticed there's, a, there's burrs and stuff on the edges because this actually gives way to the string. So it's actually, uh, it's uh, in the, it works out in the opposite, you know. The
0: string wins that battle.
2: Yes. And I use heavy strings. So I'm, I'm like, uh, they're DiDio Dario and they're 13 to
0: 54. I don't f- know of too many stadium rockers who, who use such thick strings on right a, yeah. on a super strap.
2: It is, uh, right, absolutely, but you can dig in. I play pretty aggressively, especially when it's live. You know, I hit the stuff, and it's windmills and power chords and super shred and all that stuff, and it, um, they, they, they really stand up to it. They, these strings have been on here for over a year, and on, on this
0: guitar, so yeah. So you tour with it, you leave the strings on there for...
2: Well, when I get off tour, um, Scotty, my tech, changes them pretty regularly. He goes like two or three shows, and he'll change a couple out, yeah.
0: What's your, what's Scotty's, or any of your guitar techs, What's their biggest challenge in showtime when the chaos is happening? What's
2: what? um, well, their biggest challenge? According to Scotty, says I've heard him say, "You're the easiest guitar player I've ever worked with. It's it's, like, it, it's never a problem, and, and it's not. You know, it's just I, I have a blast out there. Things very rarely go wrong, and if they do, yeah, oh well, we just get around it. You know, so that's that's their approach to it, really. So he, um, no, he, he he says it's it's pretty pain free."
0: Can we talk about Animal? Absolutely. Now, here's an interesting song with another crazy key change. Did right. you, who wrote Animal?
2: Uh, that was me. I wrote Animal. I, I brought that in. And uh, again, it was very inspired by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Relax. We was just listening to that whole thing, the down, down. It had all this stuff in the middle and these crazy noises. Um, that came later, and that was messing around with a Fairlight Machine. But um, we that song took three years to write or to, or to get right, you know, and... It had a jangle, which I've completely forgot, which was the first thing I actually brought in. And um, we finished the song and we, we weren't quite happy with it. Joe had done this amazing lead vocal in this studio in Paris. So we scrapped the backing track and, and kept the lead vocal and, and, and redone everything around there. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, this was before I had sustainers or any of this stuff. The, the whole thing at the beginning it kicks off with a, a, a guitar feedback thing it goes. <laughs> sorry yeah Three, two, three, four.
0: That's sustainer. I mean, that makes it so you don't have to get near your speakers to get feedback. Wherever you're all. standing on stage, you can get that insane. Anyway,
2: anywhere you go. But when we done that, you know, I remember and we this was before we learned there was a Galleon Kruger amp. We, we was just doing it as a demo and we didn't know that you could go in the out of the headphone socket and it turned the speaker off. So we put a pillow over it. It's it's, it's really funny. I remember there's me, Matt and Steve and uh, I'm on top of the thing as loud as it'll go to, to get that, and that's what ended up on, on the record.
0: I'm sorry, you're talking about the beginning of
2: the song? Yeah, <laughs> the, you know that. And even that. All of that stuff is it.
0: So how do you get down to F sharp, which is a completely unrelated key? Why, that's so random.
2: It, it seems random, but if you if you write songs based on the song as opposed to the key, and, and you've got the melody in mind, and, and, and that, that's where you go, then all the other stuff falls into place. Uh, and like, with that one, it had this, um, I, forget, I forget, on the verses, it was like a, a clean sound. Like. And we wanted to get this, um, a cross between Andy Summers and the fix, you know, they had this lovely clean strat sound that was like, you know, D-I'd and and we failed, we actually was trying to get this sound, it's like, oh, this will do for now. And, and it ended up on the record, so it, it kind of had, had this other, other thing in mind, but you know, you, you can't always get what you want, but you, you kind of, it, it didn't hurt it at all. And another thing on that, you know, I, again, a lot of the stuff, I, you know, I'd be like. you know that was the the pre-chorus a lot of that stuff i actually got all of that idea from from the first van halen album you know you'd be muting and everything and i thought well it'd be kind of cool to have a melodic kind of thing and i I do that a lot even that, that, you know it's all based on that that original thing you know
0: yeah you really make those those tenor parts yeah part of the song or, absolutely he, he was the only guitar so he rarely could do that yeah but yeah
2: but so and, and again you know that would go into <laughs> and then now you go Go over the top of it, so it,
0: and then the uh, middle section of that song is just you know crazy, yeah. The, yeah.
2: That's the Frankie Goes to Hollywood inspired part. And again, that was all Fairlight, but you know, uh, live. I just when
0: you say that was all Fairlight, what do you mean?
2: Uh, a Fairlight machine. It was a sampler. It was one of the very early samplers, and you, you'd, you'd sample stuff into it, and you could just have great fun with it. We we got to the Fairlight version three by the time we finished the album and then everything got transferred to a synclavier, which which was another now obviously with pro tools it makes all of this stuff redundant but back then it was kind of cutting edge and, and just really super cool and what
0: samples were coming from that were you tracking vocals and everything we put
2: stuff in there like for example even that the, the clean guitars there they would be put in there and it kind of create a kind of a weird sound that was kind of unique to its self, really. Uh, and we did, I mean, looking back, you know, I'd have rather actually changed it, but it, was, it, it worked. It was unique and it, and it still, still sounds great. You know, it'd be really hard to get those sounds because the, the, the machine doesn't exist anymore.
0: Now, not to pull, pull the curtain back too much, but how much backing tracks or samples does Def Leppard use live nowadays?
2: We don't use any. We're, we're really real singers. We actually really? absolutely and we pride ourselves on that because you know, I honestly I get on stage and one of the best things in the world for me is to I, I look round at the other two guys it's mainly me Sav and Vivian See and then Joe will sometimes go into in backing vocals It sounds like a sample and, and I don't have any effects on any of the vocals and, and I just hear this stuff But we've we've done this uh, for years now we've been Vivian's been in the band for 25 years and, and we got this uh amazing chemistry between the 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 vocals and you you sing me and joe sometimes our vocals sound like they're phasing because we're singing exactly the same thing and it's it's one of the most wonderful parts about being in this band is that that we can actually do that and that's because
0: we've been doing it so
2: long at such a level
0: you know i feel bad for perpetuating the myth for a second but really glad to bust the myth because some people think i mean it sounds so incredible at those shows
2: It, it does but when like for example if you if you heard me going, Rocky, yeah. It, it sounds like a recording almost. And I'm only doing what, what we did and we worked at it. You had, Vivian's a better singer than me. He actually sings better. Uh, Sav is amazing. And, and Joe's the best I've ever heard him sing on this tour. So you add that into the, to the mix and, and everyone's got a version of that. Then it, it sounds like a record. And, and then plus on top of that, you've got this, this wonderful chemistry. It's, uh, it's, it's killer.
0: Fantastic. What kind of vocal mics do you use up there?
2: I always use a, a, a Neumann uh, 87, whenever we've been recording. So what about uh, the, on stage to get the clear sound? 58, you yeah. know, they're sure. You know, it's just, it's, it's whatever it is. And the, the other thing is you can pretty much, you know, whatever that is, I mean, I'm sure it would sound the same. It's, oh, yeah. it's the person singing. It's But back to the amp thing, really, it's a, it's a similar thing.
0: Would you like to talk about Armageddon it? Sure, sure. <laughs> Where was that recorded?
2: Armageddon, um, well, I remember we wrote it in Dublin, and um, we wanted to have a kind of a T-Rexy feel. Rick Savage came up with that. He, he came up with the original thing, and it, um, again, they, they all took on new lives of their own. You know, it was uh, kind of a silly thing, play on words, I I'm a getting it, Armageddon it, it was the yeah, end of the world, but but not really, and uh, are you getting it? Um, so we just had fun with it, and it was, it was kind of like, we wanted that kind of T-Rexy kind of, and it started off with a
0: you know, a lot, a lot where of did things that things. part come about because that obviously harkens back to me to that sounds like certain mutt Lang songs but also rock of ages it's just a, such a catchy sound it,
2: it is i mean again you know going back to the big gaps in in, in the the, rock of ages had, was just keyboards. And it had this little guitar going. Mm -hmm. And and, and space. And this this thing did as well. It was kind of, that was kind of. Mm -hmm. And and then the. And then it gets to the pre-chorus and then it's. And again, you know, that that had, uh, I, I remember we tuned. If you listen to the record, there's these really crazy high harmonics. And we just tuned one string. And it was like ding dong, like, almost like a tubular bell thing going off. And there were so many guitars on, on, on that section and that you only play once. You know, you, you, right. you do it and then you record and you go, okay, that's fine. And, a f- you know, three years later or something, you're listening to it and you go, oh, yeah,
0: I remember that. So to recreate this hugeness at the 2017 live shows, Pretty much just having the right effects out front and. Not real. I mean, you when, when you recreate anything,
2: you you make a collage. Like when when we done the the, love bites thing, you know, we we had to learn the song. We had to, you, you couldn't play and sing a lot of the stuff. So you'd literally be sitting in your hotel room going, all well, that, you know.
1: Love bites. Love
2: I couldn't at first. I couldn't do that, and the, and you know all the.
1: Uh, or
2: whatever it was, but you know, you're trying to do that and it's really hard to, to, do. again, animal, you know.
1: I got to feel it in my blood,
2: whoa, you know, it's... You're trying to sing over the top of that. So yeah, we took two days off, rehearsed all this stuff because we had to play this number one single. So it was, you, you just choose the most prevalent and, and obvious parts, really.
0: And the crowd noise drowns it out too. They're singing <laughs> along anyway. Hopefully,
2: hopefully. Um,
0: there's a great E major kind of lead break on on uh, Armageddon. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I'm not sure who played it.
2: Uh, the the middle one is Steve.
0: Yeah, goes, they call out. Yeah, Joe calls out Steve.
2: Something like that. Steve.
0: There's a second one too, though. Right after that. At so. uh, uh, the, the end. Um, so it goes. Maybe we have time for another song too. Sure. Let's check out Excitable. That's okay. a cool riff. Kind of almost a little funk inspired. Um, so Excitable
2: really really started. It was a Rick Savage riff and, and it was there was a uh, Michael Jackson and, and Mick Jagger had done this song called State of Shock. And that inspired it was like, well, you know, this is kind of funky and it's rock, but it their one didn't really have a, a a chorus per se. You know, it was cool, it was Michael Jackson and Mick Jagger and all of that stuff. So um we, we ended up getting a song that had, had a, a lot of effects on it, you know, are you excitable? Are you excitable? Are you excitable? Are you excitable? Um, that was mutt. And, and again, this Fairlight machine, you'd feed something into it and play it on a different key and all, all these things. Again, yeah, you know, it started with a kick drum, but it was—it was. It was um, I, I, I think so. Stand up,
1: I say yeah,
2: and and it had all these kind of these really clean tones and everything, yeah. and, and then it kicked off, and it was pretty again space, you know.
0: Do you hear a lot of your amps on stage when you're playing or is it all in the ears or what's the balance?
2: I, I have in-ears, but I actually have two cabs kind of blaring. Not, not really too loud. We're a lot quieter than most bands. Um, and then again, you can control it. Rick Savage is the only one who doesn't wear in-ears, so it makes it a lot difficult for him. Actually, for us, it's the same every night. So I don't know how he does it. So he needs more of me than I do,
0: actually. So what's the stage like on the current tour? I mean, this is 2017. There's been a lot of advancements since the '88 tour, whenever that was. Absolutely, I, it's
2: advancements, crazy technology, the speakers, the lights. I mean, I, I look around. I actually, I have this chrome mic stand, and I can actually see the lights going off behind me, and it looks spectacular. And and it's I've noticed over over the years, it's got more insane and more crazy. Same with the sound and everything. And I use the same amp, I've been using it for ages, i I got a JMP1, and I use it with this old solid state Randall power amp that I've had since the 80s, Uh, and that goes to the Axe FX, and then I just have two cabs, and like I said, it's, it's mainly for Rick Savage, but... You know, I, I do like a bit of bottom end coming up. If you just have the the in ears, you kind of lack a bit of the bottom end. So I have that going to to get that drive in
0: as well. Tell us about the stage design and any hydraulics or any crazy stuff and who's how you got who designed it and were you involved?
2: Uh, we are involved in the stage stuff, but it, it's whoever comes up with it. Faye McMahon, who's a, a production manager, um, a couple of years ago when we done Hysteria live in in Vegas, said instead of us renting this hydraulic system, Phil Collins has got this thing. He's been sitting in a warehouse for like 20 years and he hasn't used it. Should we buy it off him? So we bought this thing and, you know, uh, when when the beginning of women, it goes. uh, And I'd come up on this hydraulic thing. And anyway, we still use it. Rick Savage used it on the last tour. Joe uses it. And we move it around the stage. So um, it's whoever comes up with the idea. Like I said, Faye comes up with a lot of these great ideas. He was our original lighting guy, but now he's our production manager. And actually, I've got to meet him after this. He's, um, he's incredible. So it's it, a lot of that stuff. You know, Someone will come up with a, a different idea. Hey, let's try this. And yeah, whoever comes up with it, really.
0: So you're off to rock in Rio soon? How many people are projected?
2: Um, we're doing rock and roll. I think it's 90,000. I'm not, not sure, 80,000, something like that. It's a lot, yeah. So it should be fun.
0: Great crowds down in South America.
2: South America, the greatest crowds in the world, yeah. yeah. Our two biggest uh, reactions are Mexico City, and for some reason, Montreal. Where, wherever we go to those places, I know Montreal's in Canada, but you know, for whatever reason, they're, they're, they're crazy
0: as well. We could ask uh, one last question, yeah? We have one question. To oh yeah, ahead. yeah, please. Yeah, maybe just a reflection on 30 years of yeah. hysteria. Sure. I mean, you know, what it means to you guys, what it means to the crowd, the people, um, the fans.
2: Sure. So, yeah, 30 years on, I mean, it, it's crazy. When, when we made the hysteria album, uh, we rent, went into great detail. Like, Mutt would go, we can't be ordinary. We can't be standard. Us mere mortals have to work at it. Someone like Stevie Wonder just does it in his sleep. We have to work at it. We have to work, make these songs great. He said, and, and let's make him so spectacular and special that we're talking about it in 20 years. He actually said that. And here we are 30 years later. And, um, and, and the reason that, that we're still here, that we put so much energy and effort uh, into those songs, that um, you, you're still able to, to listen to it now and it's still still effective, it's still real. There, there was, a, 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 like I said, a lot, a lot of blood and sweat and everything went in, into that. And... and uh, and, and some crazy talent and, and just a lot of fun as well. So, there was there was a lot there. So, you know, reflecting, uh, I, I see why it did what it did. And, and then you talk to our fans and they just absolutely adore it. You know, we had seven singles off of there. Um, everything from, I mean, Rocket was pretty quirky. You know, it's like a yeah. pretty over a, a kind of African drum beat and everything. It was, you know, people weren't really doing stuff like that, especially rock bands. So,
0: um, And what inspired that
2: song? Uh, Joe, Joe came up with this, he, uh, this tribal uh, Burundi Black thing from the 70s, it was like they, they recorded this uh, tribal drum thing and he said it, it, just the vibe of it, so we, we kind of tried to create our own kind of tribal thing with, with uh, the Fairlight, this, this machine again and, and all of this stuff and it, um, it was a, a great basis for this song which ended up being uh, kind of a salute to our heroes. Video, it's like t-rex and it's david bowie and mick jagger and stuff like that and it that's that's what it was it was a shout out to all, all the stuff that inspired us and it sounds typically def leppard i actually think it's the most typical def leppard song because it kind of strays off a little bit it's got massive drums it's got huge guitars biggest vocals on the album probably you know the, the rocket the chant and then it's got this whole middle section that's really kind of off it's trolley, it's
0: great, well, yes, thirty years later, you've more than accomplished your goal. I guess if I could ask you one last question, you know they always say that failure's tough to handle, but success is even more of a challenge. How does one handle so much i mean this is insane amount of success and wealth and domination. How does that work for a pop star um
2: one of the great things about handling the success with Def Leppard, is that we've had a lot of really crappy things happen as well, and and it's been hard work. Even recording the record, you know, we we started, we wrote the songs with Mutt. He had to go off and do a Cars album. He was actually contractually, you know, obligated to do this 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 thing with a Cars. So we went with a, a couple of different producers and stuff like. that, It really didn't work out. You know, he had this vision of what it was going to sound like and what we should go with, and um, so. There was a real struggle, and and like I said, you know, we released the album initially after being in all this crazy debt, and it didn't do great. So it it, all all that kind of hum. It was a very humbling experience, as much as it was uh, inspiring. It was very humbling. I think we've had that throughout our career, and uh, you you take anything, any kind of success or any great thing with a pinch of salt, as you do in life. You know, it's like, you know, life isn't isn't actually easy. It's pretty harsh, and uh, we, we have pockets of of excellence and bliss or whatever you want to call it and, and you're really lucky and and but you you know that it's everything's temporary so we've always had that in the back of our minds that it's uh it, it's a temporary thing you know success is temporary you know failure also temporary you know it's it depends on what you put into it and uh that, that that's what we learn out of the whole process i've got to say especially on this album
0: and you made some really big healthy lifestyle changes fairly early on right
2: I I did, I actually made some great changes, you know, uh, me and Steve Clark used to be drinking partners and, uh, you know, at a certain point I I kept blacking out and driving while I was drunk and all this and I said to Steve, you know, I I can't do this, I've got to stop. So I stopped and and he wasn't able to and it ended up killing him. So um, I'm I'm glad I did, but yeah, it made a a huge, huge difference. That's been 30 years now. So yeah, actually the same year as the album came out, I actually... Said, yeah, I'm stopping this stuff.
0: Coincidence? I don't know. Correlation? Yeah,
2: I guess, I
0: guess. Weird, huh? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting and playing today. Pleasure, thank you. So I love that moment when Phil tossed that metal pick my direction and it landed with a clang perfectly right in my music stand. That was a good toss because we were a good 10, 12 feet apart, maybe 10 feet apart, because we had to make room for the three different cameras to kind of get in there. The best part was at the end of the interview, I'm, I'm taking some photos of his two Jackson Signature Model soloists that he brought. And I'll put those up on the No Guitar Safe Facebook page. And I'll also put them up on my Twitter, which is jude underscore gold, same as Instagram. But anyway, while I was taking those photos, he gave me that pick. Man, thank you so much, Phil. I'm going to treasure that pick. I'm going to put it right up there with my other favorite rock and roll pick, my Malcolm Young pick from acdc i love it and then of course i also got a couple selfies with phil and the guy who took him is jeremy sponder from universal records thank you jeremy jeremy also asked that final question jeremy's a super bright guy i love him he asked that question at the end there when he chimed in about the 30th anniversary of hysteria be sure to grab your copy on cd i don't even know if it's on itunes i tried to find it but uh Yeah, grab an actual CD. Do it. Or grab the multi-CD pack with all the extra tracks or the box set if you're hardcore. Again, a huge thank you to F.U. Tone for bringing this episode to you and making it happen. I love doing it. Head over to fu-tone.com to check out all their amazing products. And of course, head to guitarplayer.com to see how we're celebrating our 50th anniversary, 50 years in print, Thanks again to my editor-in-chief, Mike Melinda, and the vice president of the company, New Bay Media, Bill Amstutz, for supporting my podcast. And, of course, thanks to Zoom for giving me the recorders that I use to record these podcasts. Again, my name is Jude Gold. Thanks for listening. There's tons of other episodes to check out. I guess 55 other ones in every genre, every flavor. And as Joe Satriani said in the very first one, I guess his music teacher told him, Keep it alive to you, 95. All right. Good.